New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. We move today from Acts 1 and 2 of the great drama of the Bible into Act 3. You remember the story so far? God's desire for shalom on the earth, that is, for the well-being of his whole creation, and especially for us human beings who are made in God's image, has been shattered by our sin and our rebellion. That's Acts 1 and 2. And the next act is launched in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham and makes this amazing promise to him that through him and his people, all nations on earth will be blessed. And so the people of Israel of the Old Testament arrive on the scene. Now, these are the people who have been redeemed by God in the Exodus. They've been forgiven by God at Mount Sinai. They've experienced God's character as Yahweh, the God of compassion and justice, the God of truth and integrity. So the point is that the character of Israel's society must now reflect the character of Israel's God. And that's why God gives them his law, his Torah. God's guidance for how he wanted them to live. This, God says, this is what a society of shalom could be like, even in a fallen, sinful world that we live in. And that's the core message of this chapter that we're going to be looking at today, Leviticus chapter 19. So let's think briefly, first of all, then about God and his people. And then in a little bit more depth, we look to God and his principles. First, God and his people. See, when, when you read here Leviticus chapter 19, it, it might just seem like a whole list of instructions for Israel that have nothing to do with us. But the constant emphasis, I'm sure you noticed, is on God, and specifically the Lord God, Yahweh God. I mean, 15 times in this one chapter comes the refrain, I am the Lord your God. So you see, this is, this is not just some slice of philosophical social ethics. This is a picture of what a society could be like if individually and corporately people were living in practical down-to-earth response to the saving work of God, reflecting the holy character of God in his compassion and justice. So what then about Israel? Well, first of all, Old Testament Israel were called to be distinctive, that is, holy. You can see it there in verse 2, you must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now that word holy basically means separate, different, distinctive, set apart by God and for God to be different from all the surrounding nations. And this was so much more than just a religious difference. You know, well, we worship Yahweh and they worship other gods. No, this was much more practical, immensely practical. It affected every area of life in Israel, family life, social life, economic, legal, political life, everything. And God says to them in chapter 18, the opening verses, God says, you, you Israel, you must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you, where you're going to live. Don't follow their practices you must follow my laws. And we shall see in a moment just how different they were called to be in so many areas of life. So Israel were called to be distinctive. And secondly, Old Testament Israel had a mission, a purpose, a reason for existence, and that was to be God's model for the nations. You remember 
that God created and called this people into existence because of the promise that he had made to Abraham to bless all nations on the earth. They were to be, as the prophet Isaiah will later say, a light to the nations. And according to the book of Deuteronomy, if Israel would live in accordance with the constitution and laws and system that God gave them, then the nations would see and they'd be curious and they would ask questions. I mean, what kind of God do these people have? What kind of society have they created with, with such good and righteous laws? This is what we read uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, where the, the nations will see this and, and they will say, this is Deuteronomy chapter 4, observe these laws carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and will say, well, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way their Lord God is near us when we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws that I'm setting before you today, says God to Israel. So you see, that's, that's why we can study these laws in the Old Testament that God gave to Israel and to seek to discern in them what God would want to be saying to other people, to the other nations, and indeed today to us, not just as Christians in the church, but even for the good of our societies. Here is, here's God's model. Here's God's paradigm. This is, as it were, God's pattern for shalom in a society, even in the midst of this fallen world of sinners that we are. So that's God and his people. Secondly, God and his principles. Let's, let's look here now at Leviticus 19. I hope that you've got it open there in front of you because uh, we're going to be looking at it in some detail. And here's a chapter you see that shows some of the things that God says will make for shalom in society. Things that will build a community of fairness and compassion and justice and peace. Now, of course, these laws were given to Old Testament Israel, but they express principles which I think can still guide us today. In fact, when you study it carefully, Leviticus 19 includes and reflects all of the Ten Commandments in how they work out in social life. And indeed, the principles of Leviticus 19 anticipate by about 3,000 years some of our more modern concerns. I mean, what's in here includes issues of social welfare, employment law and workers' rights, libel laws, health and safety, sexual abuse, racial equality, and even trading standards. They're all there in Leviticus 19. <laughs> Maybe we're not so progressive as we thought. So let's look together then briefly at seven areas where the laws of this chapter sought to transform the world modeled in the life of Israel. Seven ways in which God gave principles that would build shalom even in a fallen world. And here's the first, transforming the family. Now it's interesting that the family comes near the beginning and near the end of this chapter, emphasizing its importance in Old Testament Israel and of course in God's purposes for human life in general. Both aspects of family life are there. Can you see in verse 3, the duty of children to parents? Each of you must respect your mother and father, the fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments. And then in verse 29, the other way around, the duty of parents to children. 
not to exploit or abuse or profit from them. Do not degrade your daughter by making her a prostitute. And as well as that, of course, there are multiple other ways in which parents can abuse their children these days and, and even sell them in, in horrible trafficking that goes on. And then at the end of the chapter in verse 32, stand up in the presence of the aged and show respect for the elderly, it says, and revere your God because I am the Lord. It's noticeable there, isn't it, that respect for the elderly is portrayed as part of respect for God. And don't we see the converse, the opposite of that today? See, when a society loses respect for God, it very soon loses respect for human life in general, made in the image of God, and especially for those who are vulnerable, whether the very young or the unborn, or the very old and unproductive. So family law, transforming the family is in there. Then secondly, transforming poverty, verses 9 and 10, and then in verse 14. Now we can see two sides of the issue here. On the one hand, we have a glimpse into Israel's welfare system. And on the other hand, we have some specific concerns for those who are living with disabilities, the blind and the deaf, who then, just as much as now, would be among the poorest in society. So first there's Israel's welfare system, and there's this glimpse in verses 9 and 10, the law of gleaning. This is a basic law which applied every year in the harvest. So we read, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't go over your vineyard a second time to pick up all the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. You notice who this law was for, whose benefit it was for, the poor and the foreigners. That is the landless and the homeless. And this, of course, was what Boaz did for Ruth as a foreigner, when she arrived in Bethlehem, in fact, showing her even greater generosity than this. But then on top of this annual provision of the law of gleaning every year, there were two more instructions in other parts of Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, we read about the triennial tithe. Every third year, they were to set aside 10% of the GDP as a fund, a kind of social fund to provide for the destitute and to administer it for those who had no land of their own and needed that kind of help. And then every seventh year, there was the sabbatical release of debt that we read about in Deuteronomy 15 and Leviticus 25. And this was a year in which people would be freed from the crippling burden of unpaid debt. That is, if careful scheduling of repayment over the six previous years had not already removed it. So what this law is actually calling for is responsible and repayable lending, something which we seem to have completely lost sight of in modern Western economies. So God then calls Israel to frame a systemic response to poverty, to avoid irreversible destitution, unrepayable debts, and extreme inequality of wealth and property, poverty. So what principles, what standards does that not hold up to our governments in our modern times and to the power of corporate companies and some of the obscene wealth of individuals in our world? I mean, here we have governments that can find billions of pounds and dollars to bail out banks, but can't find what's needed to lift the burden of debt for their own poor or the destitution of the world's poorest people. 
and even chooses to cut the aid that they do give. Or those individuals who we're seeing today can spend a few billion dollars on a private trip into space for a few minutes when a fraction of their personal wealth could vaccinate almost everybody on the planet. So that's Israel's systemic approach to poverty on the one hand, but there's also Israel's humanitarian concern for persons with disabilities. Verse 14, do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God because I am the Lord. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 27 verse 18 actually declares a curse on such behavior. Now we have to say that our societies have come a very long way in the way we do care for the disabled compared with a couple of hundred years ago. But nevertheless, this COVID pandemic has exposed a huge amount still of inequality and of disproportionate suffering on the part of those who have various kinds of disability, mental and physical. And we see the relative poverty of the disabled as a very well-researched fact. And did you notice again in that verse how God identifies himself with such people? How you treat them is a measure of whether or not you really fear God. So transforming the family, transforming poverty, and then thirdly, transforming the workplace and the marketplace. This is the world of business and employment. And can you see it there, first of all, in verse 13? Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. God insists that workers have the right to prompt and fair payment for their work. Deuteronomy, again, chapter 24, makes this point even more strongly in verses 14 and 15, where they, we read, Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and they're counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. So these laws in the Old Testament were for the benefit, basically, of day laborers who were and still are very vulnerable. I mean, this was the ancient equivalent of the gig economy and zero-hour contracts. These were people who hoped for some work every day. They, they needed to get that work in order to get their pay, in order to feed their families in the evening. When my wife and I lived in India, we used to see such people on the streets of the city where we lived all the time. There they were, hoping somebody would pick them up and give them a day's work and a day's wage so that they could feed their families. And they were very easily exploited. So you see, concern for proper payment for work is a biblical theme. Job claims that he had not exploited his farm workers so that their tears were watering his furrows. That's in Job 31. Jeremiah condemned King Jehoiakim for building his palace without paying his workers. Jeremiah chapter 22. And James in the New Testament condemns the rich who do the same. This is James chapter 5 verse 4. Look, he says, the wages that you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Which sounds exactly true in the midst of this day of slaughter, in this pandemic, that there are those who have become phenomenally wealthy, who have increased their wealth 
because of it without passing on the benefit to those who work for them. So this is a pervasive biblical issue. See, this is not socialism. This is not unionism. According to Leviticus 19, this is holiness. For Israel, this is one of the things that it would mean to be distinctive from the rest of the nations in the way they ran their economy. And when we think about evangelicals of past centuries, the 18th and 19th centuries, great people like Wilberforce and Shaftesbury and indeed other great entrepreneurial business families who were Christians, this is something that they took very seriously in their political and social advocacy for the multitudes of workers who were increasingly being exploited by the onslaught of the Industrial Revolution. And these evangelical men and women, they sought to improve both working conditions and wages. And so where are Christians today who are speaking up on behalf of the lowest paid, the migrant workers, the sweatshop conditions of majority world countries, and indeed even some here in the United Kingdom? This COVID pandemic has shown us brutally that so-called key workers, as we call them, who actually keep the country moving at all, are routinely among the lowest paid and then the most insecure employment. And God calls here in this chapter, God calls for justice in the workplace. So if you are a Christian businessman or businesswoman, if you employ others, a workforce, are you personally heeding God's call, treating your workers as God himself wants? And God's concern here in this chapter, you see, is not just for the workplace, but also for the marketplace. That is the world of trade, of buying and selling, where God insists on honesty and integrity there too. You see it in verse 35 and verse 36, use honest scales and honest weights. Deuteronomy spells it out even more emphatically in Deuteronomy chapter 25, where it says, do not have two differing weights in your bag, one heavy, one light. In other words, uh, one when you're buying, one when you're selling. Do not have two different measures in your house, one large, one small. No, you must have accurate, honest weights and measures so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Because the Lord your God detests anyone who does these things, anyone who deals dishonestly. See, God detests it. The word is abomination. He detests dishonesty in the world of business practice. According to the book of Proverbs, it's one of the things he regards as an abomination. It stinks in his nostrils. Differing weights, differing measures, the Lord detests them both. Unfair, dishonest trading are as much an abomination to God as sexual immorality, which receives the same verdict. And how passionate we are as Christians about sexual sin and how apathetic and acquiescent we are often about economic sin and the obscene, immoral unfairness of the world's trading systems and the abuse of corporate power for political aims and advantage and the corruption of our financial and political world. And the book of Proverbs would surely see much that goes on in our Western world as an abomination to the Lord. And we wonder how he can tolerate tolerate it. No, Leviticus 19 here longs for a society in which shalom includes fair and honest dealing, integrity in the day-to-day -day affairs of the marketplace, whether that's a village market stall or the global economy. So 
transforming the family, transforming poverty, the workplace, the marketplace, and now fourthly, transforming the legal system there in verses 15 and 16. And this, of course, was what the ninth commandment was primarily about. You shall not bear false witness, i.e. in court. And it also relates, of course, to verse 12 here in the chapter where it says, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of the Lord your God, because I am the Lord. That is using God's name to give false testimony in a court case. No, says verse 15, do not pervert justice. Don't show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Don't go about spreading slander among your people and don't do anything that endangers your neighbor's life because I am the Lord. You see, in Old Testament Israel, we see that there was a very high view of the need for judicial integrity in the system. It was not enough just to have good laws that God had given, but that all those who are involved in the legal process of legislation and judicial court cases need to be trustworthy and truthful and honest and free from corruption and bribery. Take a look sometime at Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 to 9, because it's even more expanded than here in Leviticus 19. You get instructions to witnesses in a case. You get instructions to the opponents between one another who are having a court case in verses 4 and 5. And you have instructions to the judges who had to make a decision, come to a verdict in verses 6 to 9. And of course, there are many Psalms, aren't there, that complain about those who are bringing false accusations or obstructing justice. And the prophets again and again condemn the wealthy, the powerful, who were corrupting and manipulating the legal system to their own advantage. So it's very clear, you see, in the Bible that God cares passionately about the integrity and the good working of the justice system in society. Now, of course, as you said so often, we live in a fallen society. People behave badly. People commit crimes. People exploit and oppress one another. Yes, they do. But if if there is some system of justice in a society, some way to put things right again, then society can at least have some measure of balance and shalom and justice. But if the legal system itself becomes corrupt, or as is happening in Britain right now, simply begins to creak and to fall apart under the enormous pressures, the congestion, the backlog, the delays, because of the underfunding and the swinging long-term cuts that were driven by ideological austerity, the closing of courtrooms, the shortage of staff, the lack of legal aid, the whole thing begins to fall apart. Then, then I think the country is in great danger because sin and crime thrive when there's no restraint or inadequate justice. And God did warn us here in this chapter. That brings us fifthly to transforming relationships, because, of course, it would be far better not to have to go to court at all. And so the chapter encourages attention to those ordinary relationships within the community that will foster harmony and shalom in the community, attitudes, actions that will reduce friction and conflict and promote honest behavior and, of course, truthful speech. Now, obviously, verse 11 would help. Do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. I mean, all those things we know destroy shalom in any society, for an individual, for families, and indeed for a whole country. When lies and deception 
become the standard mode of speech of our political leaders. But verses 17 and 18 are a little bit more subtle. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you won't share his guilt. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, that means that when Jesus warned us against hatred in the heart, in the Sermon on the Mount, it was not new. And then we know that John adds in 1 John chapter 3 that anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And isn't it interesting that our society now recognizes hate crime as a major disruptor of communal shalom and how much we see of hate crime, hate speech in the culture around us today. <laughs> Leviticus got there first. And then the second half of verse 17 calls us to have courage to point out and not share guilt by collusion with those who are doing wrong. Verse 18 challenges to avoid revenge or holding grudges, which again is very difficult to do, especially in these days of the internet when nothing ever goes away. And yet these things are so essential to preserve social shalom. And so to that well-known second greatest commandment in the law, as Jesus called it in Matthew 5, there it is in Leviticus verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. It's comprehensive, isn't it? It's, it's an all-inclusive concern for the welfare of others. And in this chapter, of course, it's surrounded by examples, practical examples of what it means to love your neighbor or to fail to do so. And if we ask, well, who is my neighbor? <laughs> then we know exactly how Jesus answered that question in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the point is not trying to define or to limit who qualifies as my neighbor, but to face up to what it demands to be the neighbor to those in need. So transforming the family, poverty, workplace and marketplace, legal system, neighborhood relationships, and then sixthly, transforming race relations. Verses 33 and 34. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not ill-treat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. Now, can you see the parallel or the echo here between verse 18, love your neighbor, and verse 34, love the foreigner. Both of them have the same command in the same words. And you shall love is literally the Hebrew. And that precise form of words in Hebrew only occurs four times in the Old Testament. Once it is love for God, Deuteronomy 6, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. Once it is love for the neighbor, Leviticus 19.18, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And twice it is love for the foreigner. Here in Leviticus 19, verse 34, you shall love him, that is the foreigner, as yourself. And Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 19, and you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Now this, this practical love for the outsider is very strong in the Old Testament. This is a concern for the marginal people, those who don't belong to the majority community those who lack the natural protections of home and family and kinship and land, 
And concern for those people is regularly included in Israel's social legislation, along with widows and orphans. That is the landless, the familyless, the homeless. In our world, this would include those who are vulnerable as refugees, as asylum seekers, trafficked women and children, migrant workers, and so on. These outside people who we think don't belong to us. And they're so easy to hate or to just neglect or to exploit or to blame, just as the Hebrews were in Egypt. And God says to precisely to the Israelites, you should remember what that was like and do not treat others in your country the way the Egyptian treated you and theirs. And remember who it was who brought you out of there. I'm the Lord your God. But you see, this law in Leviticus 19 doesn't just encourage kindness and compassion, just be nice to foreigners. No, it specifically requires equality under the law for foreigners as for Israelites. And this is an incredibly countercultural law. It's quite unprecedented. There's nothing like this in any of the other laws of the ancient Near East. But God says to Israel, as far as legal procedures in courts are concerned, there's to be no second-class citizens based on ethnicity alone. No oppression, no exploitation, no discrimination against them in the courts or in other social systems. And how far short we fall of such standards in our so-called civilized societies. I mean, not only do we not live up to the racial equality laws that we do have, but we fall short of the laws given by God 3,000 years ago. And we have to ask, to be ruthlessly honest, what do these verses mean? What do they say as regards seeking shalom, being people of peace here in Northern Ireland between the communities in this province? Don't they challenge our behavior and our attitudes? But they also challenge our legal, our constitutional, and our economic structures and our political choices and decisions, as it was for Israel. And then finally, transforming worship. There are a few religious laws in this chapter. I mean, it's very interesting. It begins, you shall be holy, and yet most of the chapter is not about religious things, but about practical, down-to-earth, every life, everyday life in society. But there are those laws here which preserve or aim to preserve not only the purity of Israel's worship, but also its inclusiveness and its meaning. So verse four, no idolatry, not to worship the gods of the people around, because as we thought earlier, false gods will always lead to social breakdown and injustice, as the worship of Baal certainly did in Israel later. I mean, just think of Jezebel. She came from Phoenicia, she was a worshiper of Baal, and look what happened to Naboth and his family. They were robbed of their properties and indeed of their lives because of the worship of a false god. So no idolatry. And then verses five to eight, which I think basically means make sure that you share the sacrificial food. You see, fellowship offerings were basically barbecue time because all the meat of the animal that was offered as a fellowship offering could be eaten. But God says it's not to be kept and stored up. And that means you need plenty of people, your own family, your friends, your neighbors to consume the meat on the day of the sacrifice or the latest the next day. So probably this is another example of how Israel's worship was to be inclusive and generous. 
remember the widow, the alien, the Levite. Rejoice, have a party, but remember those who have nothing to bring. And then keep clear of pagan customs. Verses 26 to 28 and 31 are probably describing features of Canaanite worship that Israel was to reject. They're not just prohibiting barbers or tattoos. It's more to do with the occult, with divination and sorcery and spiritism and bodily cuttings that were part of the worship of Baal. So here's God saying, don't try to mix the worship of the living God with practices which come from the culture around you. So we have to ask, what might be the practices of our surrounding culture that we allow to pollute our worship of God? Now, if one of the biggest idolatries in our culture today is consumerism, then we need to watch that our worship doesn't just become yet another marketing opportunity or an exercise in branding and consumer choice, which church do you want to go to with this week? We so easily pollute the worship of God with the idolatry of the world around us. We become, as it were, holy shoppers. And the same kind of idolatry could be true of nationalism and militarism when we adulterate the worship of the living God with political or national allegiances, with the flags and paraphernalia of war or the emblems of our tribal identities and so on. We bring those things into the worship of God. God says, no, keep them out. Worship God alone. And verse 30, observe the Sabbath not just as a compulsory day of rest, but for the benefit of working people and working animals. And remember the tabernacle. That is, remember that God lives in your midst. Uh, it's in order to preserve uh, a way of life which is consistent with the presence of God that you're to revere his tabernacle. Well, there we have it. There's the great sweep of Leviticus 19. It's a comprehensive pattern for some of the key aspects of social life in the real world, even in this fallen world. It's a roadmap for shalom in a fallen world. This is as if God is saying to the Israelites, look, I don't expect you to be perfect. We're not in the new creation yet. But if you want to be a society which is bearable and livable and peaceable and flourishing, then here are some principles, some objectives to aim at and some pitfalls to avoid. And isn't it a transforming vision? I mean, that's why I use that word, transforming these things, because just think, what would the world be like if there was respect and responsibility in the family and for the elderly? If there was practical and accessible help for the poor and for the disabled? If there was fairness in the workplace and honesty in the marketplace, if there was full justice and integrity in the legal system, and love and compassion and understanding in the neighborhood, if there was equality, genuine equality in race relations, and purity in our worship. I mean, wouldn't those things transform our society? Who says that the Bible is not relevant? But Let's get this straight. This is not some kind of utopian idealism. This is God's idea of holiness, of the practical outworking of God-likeness in society. This is how God wanted Old Testament Israel to be a model society, to build and practice a kind of shalom, even within a fallen and sinful world, that would be a model to other nations. Well, of course, history has moved on 
and culture has changed. And we don't live in the world of Old Testament Israel. Of course we don't. And yet, doesn't Paul tell us that all scripture is inspired by God, including this scripture, and is profitable for teaching and reproof and training in righteousness, he said, or as one translation puts it, education for justice. And Paul also says, these things were written down for our learning. So the question is, what do we learn from a chapter like Leviticus 19? And how will we seek to live out these principles in our own community, in our neighborhood? How can we as individuals and as churches seek such ideals and objectives through our voices, through our actions in society? Now that's gonna take a lot of thought. That's hard work. And we, we may not always agree on what we think we should do. That's almost inevitable. But at least we should agree that this is God's word. And these are God's principles. Amen. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.